0: how are you doing today hey john how are you i'm good thanks uh thanks so much for taking some time today um on thursday will be january 6 2002 and as as we all know a, a year ago in 2021 a horrific attack by americans on americans that we haven't seen really since the civil war if you think about it and In the past year, there's been a lot of conversations, discussions, potential strategies on what we can do both as a society and then more specifically for our audience, what the AML CTF community can do to be prepared or to be vigilant, if you will, regarding uh, domestic terrorist attacks. And so I want to start with this um, because I want to get your sense of the financial aspects, which is always the way in which our community um, can help, right? Because if, if we can figure out ways to disrupt the finances or report potential suspicious activity, th- there, there's value there. But obviously, we have a broader role because we're also members of the community. And so, give me your your thoughts. Your your over the past year since last January six.
1: You know, what do you what do you take away from that, and where we are today? No, John, first let me thank you for doing this, um, because I, I think we need to continue to draw attention to this, and particularly this problem. Uh, this is, there's so many sensitivities involved. And to your point, you know our community has a responsibility um, that, that, that finances one of the vulnerabilities for terrorists, regardless of how difficult it is for us to identify it. And so by us promoting awareness to this um, and continually having this discussion and discussions like this, it's it's really one of the ways that we can respond. So um, there are so many backstories when it comes to January 6th, and it's hard to believe it's it's about a year since January 6th. And I know in the next few days, there are going to be a lot of press conferences and statements and soul searching about about where we are and, and uh, you know, how things are. And, and quite frankly, obviously and, and you and I have spoken about this before and, and we don't want to make this about politics, but um, you know after 9/11 the country came together in a bipartisan fashion right. and, and we looked at and we honestly assessed what the problems were and how do we move forward? Because obviously on every front, we had problems that needed to be addressed. And January 6th, is it, it's, it's its ironic that January 6th happens 20 years after 9-11. And here we are confronted with a 9-11 like situation because of, of the enormity of what happened on, on January 6th. And yet, um, you know, and 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 again, I don't want to be political, but we can't have we have to have a bipartisan approach to this. And one party can't be in denial or to minimize what happened as, right. as what's happened here. So that makes it that much more difficult to deal with. But but on so many fronts, there are so many things to look at. And one of the fronts is the law enforcement front because that is bipartisan and, and nonpartisan, I should say, not bipartisan. Right. And and you know what struck me the most there was how unprepared we were, and we were complacent the way we were before nine eleven, and that's why I say we need to have a bipartisan response here, because we need to understand why there was a breakdown in communications the way there was. And you, I think you know that, Dennis,
0: sorry yeah. to interrupt, but yeah. I want to I want to build off of that point. You yeah. and I uh, shared a uh, we we read a story and pretty lengthy investigative piece in USA Today that was published on January or December 30th. And it goes into that, right? As you said, there was a lot of um, some finger pointing, but a lot of uh, soul searching after 9-11. What did we miss? How come we weren't prepared? This story uh, that talks to law enforcement, current former members, it talks to p- some political types of policymakers, makes a similar um uh, statement, right? The statement, as you just said, where we weren't, we knew that there was domestic terrorism. There was no question, but it didn't seem like the, it was a priority, right? It didn't seem like there were enough, uh, enough data or useful uh, information. Although the story does go on to say, and I'll I'll ask you to fill this in, that your former colleagues uh, at the FBI, Homeland Security, you know, other places in law enforcement were sharing some Uh, information that they had that could be indicative of potential attacks and were able to stop some, but probably not on the level that you would, you would find acceptable. Is that, is that a fair statement?
1: Yes, John, I think that is a fair statement. And I think that's where we need to go is to assess, you know, that, that level of communication and the breakdown in the level of communication because information does get shared, but there wasn't the follow up that there needed to be in my view. Um, and, and I think that goes to some of the working groups, the interagency groups that should be following through on these things. It's, it's one thing to get a piece of information or intelligence and then to send it off to the other agencies, but to not follow up to determine did it get to the right people or for the right people to be in communication with each other. And, and I think that's where we have to go back to the 9-11 model and look at, how how the different agencies came together after 9-11 and and really had the the formation of fusion centers and and other mechanisms to better share information. And I think that's what needs to happen here is to get back to revisit that. And and part of it was the complacency like, well, wait a minute, we have this intelligence, but this can't possibly happen. Nobody's right. going to attack the Capitol. And if they do, will be prepared for. It. Well, obviously we weren't. So we need to revisit that. And, and so, you know, hopefully, and I would think, and, and, you know, I've, I've, I've taken on a role, you know, outside, you know, with, with the FBI a little more. And, and I honestly believe that they're doing an honest assessment um, of these situations. And I think, uh, if you look at the ongoing investigation that's that's come out of uh, the Washington Field Office, where they've they're running that. You and I both know Steve D'Antuano, right. who's now the Assistant Director in charge in uh, in the Washington Field Office, and it's really uh, grown into and evolved into the largest uh, investigation the bureau's ever taken on, and and I think we're getting to crunch time as we get into 2022. And we start to see, you know, up until now, I think, what do they, according to the papers, the articles that you pointed out and the articles in the Washington Post has done some really good reporting, um, 725 twenty or 27 people now have been charged. But what to me is going to be the pivotal point is that we have, we're awaiting 20 trials and those trials are going to be really important because this is where we're going to get down to the conspiracy um, of, of those the people in either the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, that, that core group of people that, that really were at the heart of the conspiracy. And we know there's so many backstories around that too. But to me, that, that, that's going to be the key to see where we go in the next few months.
0: You know, um, one of the things we have now that we didn't have then
1: which is sort of a,
0: it's both useful and actually problematic is social media. So we do see statements and pages and groups that are really out in the open expressing their sometimes hatred for the government. I mean, obviously when you had uh, several individuals that were going to kidnap the governor of Michigan, for gosh sakes, I mean, you know, th- that becomes something that we we never experienced before, at least not this publicly. So there's more more and more information. I think you're right. I think obviously the FBI has made some very public statements about what they're gonna do going forward. I think that's both to be commended, let's support that. So let's not look back too much. But I think for purposes of our audience, one of the things that struck me, I'll give you a quick little anecdote, then I want you to give us your take on sort of financial warning signs going forward. Um, when we had the attacks on January 6th, I'm I'm sure you did the same thing. I talked to some of our, uh, our friends in the financial sector and they said that once that occurred, uh, they went, um, and looked at information of particular, uh, um, customers. They had to, you know, they had some inkling that, these customers could have been involved, whether credit card purchases or what have you, in the D.C., Northern Virginia area to see if there's any information that made sense that they could provide on a SAR or a tip to law enforcement. So not everybody did this, but so several institutions did this. They weren't required to, but obviously they were as they are in the anti-human trafficking space. They're they're being proactive and they're thinking, look, if I got some information that's going to be useful to my partners in law enforcement want to share it. So some of that occurred. But I also heard anecdotally that some in those same institutions that weren't in the investigative side were questioning, why are we doing this? Like didn't see see the uh, proactive nature of their investigative groups as a positive. They were saying, look, people have First Amendment rights, that kind of thing. That troubles me on a lot of levels. Now, again, you don't want institutions digging into your background for no reason. But what's your take on those sorts of things? Because so they do it with anti-human trafficking, right? If they get information, they will look at financial footprints and see if uh, that could be useful to law enforcement. So why is this any different?
1: Yeah. And, and well, I think that the reason they it, it becomes different is looking at the constitutional rights that people have, these the, the, the rights uh, the, protected by the Constitution. And the sensitivity there. And then, you know, from a financial institution standpoint, it's it, it's the adverse, you know, the, the publicity that's going to come out of the cooperation. Right. And and and, you know, the, the people, especially the far right that and even the far left that are going to look at this and saying that that's intrusive and, and it, it's an overreach and and you don't have a right to do that. And I know, you know, based on, on what you said, because I've heard a lot of the same reporting and, and had some of the same discussions with our colleagues about how uh, the people who did come forward and were doing a tremendous job, right. because this is what we really have to be doing to be more proactive or is what I would say is to be more urgently reactive because this is all behind us and, and these, these things have taken place. You go back and you can put the picture together, but it goes hand in hand what law enforcement is trying to do. Law enforcement needs that information. They need to get those SARS and, and to, to help build those cases against the individuals and especially what we're talking about, the 20 people that are the 20 cases waiting to happen, those right. trials. This is the type of evidence that they really need. So it's 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 unfortunate that that we've got that seeming impediment that that sensitivity exists. Well, are, are we are we overreaching and and you know are we giving the appearance of overreaching? So there's a lot of sensitivity with the institutions, but we have to overcome that. And John, you know what? That same sensitivity is on the law enforcement side because, yeah, as you know, and 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 not to drift from what what we want to talk about, but it goes to part of the problem with law enforcement was the terrorist financing operations section at the FBI. You know, they 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 uh, folded that up and 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 they folded back those resources and they don't have the capacity they had. But one of the things that they were doing that they were doing so well was this type of outreach with the financial institutions to help them to identify the warning signs just like we do in the human trafficking and 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 that type of an, that initiative was really good but then even the limited resources the bureau has to do that they were getting challenged by the bureau's legal counsel as to wait a minute are we overstepping our authority by sharing information we shouldn't be sharing and it's information that we've traditionally shared right so that sensitivity is a unfortunately in this instance it's 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 both sides looking over their shoulder at the potential criticism and and I think we need to take we need to take a step back and regroup and say wait a minute this is powerful evidence and if we if we go about it smartly and rightly and and rightly meaning within the parameters of the law then there's no problem and that's what we need to strive to do going forward is how do we how do we weaponize this information so that we can use it? And in particular, if we can get it to a point where we can do it proactively, where, where there may be warning signs that that going forward, those are the warning signs we need to to hopefully disrupt another capital attack or you know another 9-11. And and these these things aren't gonna go away, so we need to take steps how how can we better prepare and what can we do because to the point you made before about about the social media finance is still one of the two biggest um, vulnerabilities to any of these people and likewise social media now has become a huge vulnerability and that's part of the communications that I always talk about being vulnerable with finance right
0: you know uh, let's let's focus on that i'd like to spend some time uh, and I'll tell our listeners that um, I'm going to uh, put you a little bit on the spot, but I'm sure you're going to say yes. I'd love to be able to share your, your one-page slide on the financial warning signs. Um, so the financial warning signs that you've created is on steps to homegrown violent extremists and domestic violent extremist radicalization. So you have a six-step process. And to your point, to be pro- both proactive and look at the financial activity here. So let's walk through steps one through six. Um, and I, I, have them in front of me. So your first one and I ask you to just a comment on each of them, if you wouldn't mind, your first step is on mindset.
1: Yeah. So, so let me, let me also set the stage John, a little bit. I think yeah. I sent you three slides altogether you did. And, and it starts out with the, um, um, kind of the, the four steps of, of the radicalization process and that's sympathizer Activists to extremists to terrorists, and, and January six just it, it, it just symbolizes this where how some people might have been activists who got caught up to become extremists and then across that line of extremism to violent extremism. But some of the people and the people who were waiting for that trial. They went there with the full intent to disrupt what was going on in Congress, and they crossed the line into terrorism. So taking that to the next side is there. uh, I I did some research on this with Frederick Reynolds Uh and, and he and I put this together and, and, you know, I talked about those four steps. You go from sympathizer to activist, to extremist, to terrorist. And Frederick and I then talked about, and it's to the point where you wanted me to discuss here is the six steps. Right. And, And so step one is mindset and, and, you know, and for our audience, if John does share the slide, you'll see they're color-coded in a sense. So at that first step, it's green. And, and that transponds to, to the sympathizer and and its mindset. It's, it's, you're starting to go from sympathizer to terrorist. And I have some case studies that can correlate to this. And you can see the difference. But the point here is, that there's a transformation of personality that also is a transformation in the way people spend and their spending habits and and how they're going to bank. And and even though these are finite points, these are the types of points that we need to pick up on and to work with um, in trying to identify some of the warning signs. So the first step is that, okay, the mindset. And then you go from mind step to pattern of life changes because now you're getting obsessed and you're, you're, you're starting to evolve from that sympathizer to an activist and you're, and you're looking at things differently. So your pattern of life changes, um, you're starting to get more extreme and, and you may start, you know, again, to, to spend differently. Um, you, you get more active, um, with, with some of these, um, some of these websites and, 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 and different types of activities on social media. Then you go to step three, where now you're, you're developing your capability. And what does that mean? You're doing research about becoming more of an, well, more of an extremist. And, and to the point of violence, um, and you're going out and, and some of these people, they actually, well, and, and you talked about um, the uh, Whitmer kidnapping. And, and they actually started to practice. They went to firearms practice. They, they did surveillances. They did things that changed that, that, that they changed the way they lived. They changed the way they acted. And, and that type of extremism is another thing that from a public sector, you can see the transformation and changes in people's personality as they start to get more radicalized and more extreme. So, so here you've kind of gone from that area of green where you're just simply a sympathizer. Now you're getting more active. So we get into the yellow phase, so to speak, if, you color, if you're if putting in that color code and you're getting into, okay, I'm developing my capabilities. That means I'm spending differently. That right. means I'm doing things a little differently. So now you go to the next step where you're crossing from activism to extremism. That's going to step four now you're going to start concealing your activities. You, you, you don't want law enforcement to know what you're doing. You don't want outside of that circle of conspirators you may be with, like whether it's the Proud Boys or um, the Oath Keepers, or if it's a small group and, and like one of these small militia groups and, and you're, you're part of that little group. And, and there are so many of these fragmented groups out there. So so now you're concealing your activity and now you're going to ratchet it up to step five where you're actually planning your operation. So you put this in context with January 6th, that core group that came to Washington with the intent that they were going to take advantage of the situation and they were going to look at the opportunity to breach the Capitol to get in there and to disrupt and and stop. The, the election or the count, the vote count that needed to take place for the transition of the government. Now, when you get to that level and you've planned the operation and, and it goes to the also to the, when I talk about the terrorist attack cycle, which is a little different, but when you get to the point in the terrorist attack cycle of deployment, that's set step six. So now we've transitioned from yellow to orange. When you get to step six, that's your personal preparation that's when you're going to launch that's when you're going to do your um, when you've crossed that line into terrorism and you're taking those actions and and so now that 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 goes to red because you've crossed the line and you're actually out there and you're doing it and and those are the six steps and and here you know in the sixth the sixth step that's the point where we've been urgently reactive and where you were talking about when you led off with this about the question about some of the financial institutions going back and looking at the credit card activity and, and other warning signs or other financial signs that, that are gonna trigger SARS being filed because it, 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 it rolls right into um, the January 6th attack. This is the point here where that is really important because now we've crossed that line and they've taken that action. And and clearly, you know, the information that the banks have at that point, even, even though it's reactive and the activities already taken place, right. when that evidence can get matched up to the ongoing investigation, that's very important evidence um, to prove intent and and for law enforcement to use in the trials. And as I said, we're about to see the trials come to fruition here, hopefully in the next few months. And and hopefully the government's cases are going to be strong and, and hopefully um, they'll, they're going to be able to use um, the credit card information and other information as, 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 as evidence to support, you know, especially the conspiracy theories and I'm sorry, the conspiracy charges, not theories. Um, and, and that's going to be important.
0: Yeah. You know um, it does lead me to another question. Uh, going back to that USA Today article, which or, or investigative piece, which covered a lot of things that we've we previously talked about. One of the things we first heard after January 6 was there was a there was a desperate my my not my words, so others saying this desperate need for a domestic terrorism law. But then others said after a couple of weeks of that debate, some still believe that very strongly. Others say, well, you know, there there are actually a lot of tools already in use, as you said, obviously, some of these conspiracy theories uh, are not theories, you know, statutes and charges. We'll we'll see once these cases come to conclusion, what sort of uh, value that will have as a training tool, which you're always good at putting together for um, students and AML professionals. Hey, here's some cases, and this is how we get better. What's your general take? Again, we don't have to go into a, uh, you know, an analysis of the of the legal aspects of this, but just in general, it, I certainly believed early on, and I, I haven't changed my mind that much, that a domestic terrorism law would seem to make sense because it would be clear, like a money laundering law is that sort of thing. But is it is that too simple of a response? That perhaps there are a number of really strong tools out there that maybe some version of a domestic terrorism statute should be considered. What, what's your what's your view of that? Having you know worked under other statutes when you were in you know public life and you had to deal with uh, you know helping prosecutors put cases together
1: I think that this is a question and and this goes to the point of why we need that bipartisan um, support to look at this because this has to be looked at and initially my position was like yours and it may still be that we need some sort of domestic terrorism law um, but I also read and I read from some very respected individuals the people I respect greatly um, that that they believe that that we do have um, mechanisms available to us enough legal um, grounds and 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 different um, criminal charges that we can charge that that really it's not necessary to and I think I, I'm more in agreement with you that I, I would like to see some sort of law. And what I would like to see is some sort of um, material support. We have, you know, for, for international terrorists and for the homegrown violent extremists, what we charge them with is, um, is uh, material support, providing material support. And material support doesn't have to be financial Right. It can be their commitment to an act. So, just by virtue, if we had a material support statute, just by virtue of people attacking the Capitol the way they did, you could you could probably charge them with material support for doing that. Um, and and I'm not a lawyer, and I don't know all the nuances of of a legal statute, but but I would like to see a statute like that because it would definitely give us. Leverage from a law enforcement investigative standpoint, from a prosecutor standpoint, and hopefully from the standpoint of a deterrent. And that's one thing, John, we haven't talked about yet is is it's interesting here. So many people and so many people got caught up. If you go back to the continuum, we talked about the six steps of radicalization. So the the four steps of radicalization um, in terms of sympathizer, activist, extremist, terrorist. I think a good argument can be made that a number of people who came to Washington were really they they be they were activists and they got worked up and they went into the extremist mode and became more violent. And they weren't necessarily intending to do what they did, but they did it. And and they were caught up in that stuff. But we need to have the ability to have those statutes where where we have that deterrent. If that deterrent existed, would that deterrent have tempered their activism to extremism to think about the consequences of their act? And I would hope that, 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 that in the future that'll happen. I think what's gonna come out of this is so many people have been charged here um, and they never expected that anything like that could possibly happen. I'm hoping that one of the takeaways, and we don't know this um, at this point, But with so many people pleading guilty and realizing the consequences that that go along with these actions, that maybe this will serve as a deterrent. Unfortunately, those people that are predetermined and and particularly people who have like the boogaloo boy type of mentality where they're looking to provoke the next civil war, uh, that's not going to deter them. So having a material support statute out there to me, would be something that whether or not there's a deterrent, it gives law enforcement some leverage in being able to charge differently and better. I would, you know, and I better is probably a poor choice of words, but but giving the prosecutors more leverage, and and certainly, I, I think something like that when it comes to plea agreements versus uh, trials and, and and taking your chance going to trial people are going to be more inclined to plead guilty because the government is going to have a much stronger case.
0: Now, that makes sense. Uh, Let me get you out of here on on this last question for the AML professionals that are listening uh, to you go through all this. um, How best can we stay on top of this? Domestic terrorism is now a listed priority. So we'll be getting more information from the government, from think tanks, obviously folks like yourself. Um, If you're offering advice to the AML professionals on sort of staying on top of this, both from a financial standpoint and to understand, again, how these cases are outside of the obvious. Obviously, you can you can, you can follow it in the uh, in the in the media reports uh, and obviously, in, in, like we said, some of the think tanks and organizations that you trust. Uh, what would be your suggestion on how to st- stay current with all of
1: this? Yeah, well, obviously, I like that swap team approach that I talk about from a financial institution standpoint, and so that's staying staying abreast of, of to your point, um, the different think tanks and the reports that are being issued, and and for instance, you know, even though um, the congressional committee that's 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 investigating this isn't truly bipartisan. They're, they're doing a good job and, and they're looking at five different aspects, including finance. Um, so hopefully when they come out with a report, it's reports like that, it's reports like the think tanks put out. So it's understanding the problem. And then going back to the six steps that I talk about is how do you incorporate that into your compliance program? How, how do you then, what well, the other thing we need to do, John, is social media has become such um, um, a a vulnerability to these people because they're out there and they're openly putting these things out on social media Um, and 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 not to make light of the situation, but it's it's like that point um, that you can't fix stupid and people just can't stop going out and espousing their beliefs like this. It's how do we use um, the social media then as, as, as perhaps uh, one of the compliance checkpoints. Well,
0: that makes, that makes sense. Dennis uh, Lormel, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Like I said, if it's okay with you and Frederick, we'd like to post those slides up on our website when we post the interview. Thanks so much for uh, giving us your insight. Stay safe and uh, we'll talk soon. Good stuff. Thanks, John. Take care.